This is the On Humans podcast with your host, Ilarim Nakedam. In 1888, a socialist writer Edward Bellany published a book called Looking Backward, where he tried to imagine what a society of abundance could one day look like. Bellamy's protagonist is thrown to year 2000 in the future. And in one peculiar scene, he's asked if he would like to hear some music. He expects his hostess to pick up an instrument and play, but when the music begins, protagonist cannot find a player nor an instrument in the room. Yet a whole orchestra seems to be playing for them. Now, it turns out that in year 2000, as Bellamy imagines it, one is able to use a telephone and call a live orchestra. And as if this was not revolutionary enough, the protagonist soon learns that his host can actually telephone four orchestras, always deciding which of them suits her mood best. The narrator's reaction is striking. Bellamy writes, quote, If we could have devised an arrangement for providing everybody with music in their homes, suited to every mood and beginning and ceasing at will, we should have considered the limit of human felicity. Unquote. So here we are in 2023, with access to music and other goods far beyond what people like Bellamy could have ever imagined. And today's episode is about that disruption, about how and why we went so far beyond what only 150 years ago looked like the limit of human felicity. And once we did, how this did cause revolutions on almost all front of our lives, but failed to deliver a utopia. My guest is Bradford DeLong, an economic historian at Berkeley, who used to work as an economist at the US Treasury. His recent book is Slouching Towards Utopia. The book was published in the fall and became an immediate hit already before publication. The Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman had called it a classic and a must read. Indeed, DeLong's book is much more than a recount of the economic story of the past 150 years, although it is also that. But it's also a reimagination of the way we think about our recent past. Unlike most histories, DeLong's approach does not focus on carving out eras marked by wars. Rather, he focuses on carving out eras marked by changes in the everyday condition of average humans. And he sees 1870s as a key moment, not only of recent times, but of all the time our species has existed. We start by discussing the claim that 1870 was a special time for humanity, much more special than the Industrial Revolution of 1770, for example. We also discuss various ways in which equality has waxed and waned throughout the century. For example, DeLong explains why he thinks that Marx and Engels were importantly right about their present, but factually wrong about their future. And we end up with discussion on how the economic story explains much of the 20th century, from fascism to feminism and civil rights. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation. If you do, please consider supporting the podcast by sharing it, rating it, or just subscribing to it. So if you have any thoughts about this or other episodes, feedback, or guest suggestions, or just want to say hello, you can message me anytime to makela.ilari at outlook.com. Now to the show. I bring to you Brad DeLong. Professor Brad DeLong, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been six months. So congrats uh, on the on the publication of the book. Um, six months is a is a small while, but I've heard you say that you started writing in the end of nineties. So compared to that, I guess it's just yesterday. So so I think that's somewhat of an overstatement. I have a roommate who swears he read a complete draft of the book thirty years ago, um, and that's simply wrong. That all I did before <laughs> two thousand was write one chapter and put a stake in the ground saying that this was a project that I wanted to attempt, although I did not know if I would ever finish it. And I suppose five years before that, you know, back when my roommate Robert thinks he read a complete draft, um, 
What I basically had was I basically had a story and a complaint about the then current literature about the history of the 20th century, about how the then current TO literature of the history of the 20th century was getting it fundamentally wrong and someone should write, you should write it up right. And nobody seemed to doing so by, by the year 2000, I was thinking maybe that person should be me, but still it had taken 22 years to get to where we are now. And what did they get wrong and what did you want to add? Well, I think the thing that most got it was, um, you know, Eric Hobsbawm, Eric Hobsbawm, absolutely great historian. Um, Eric Hobsbawm, a kind of lot of blinders, lots of things he could not see because of who he was, what he had seen, where he had been. Um, you know, his story was basically that the 20th century is a story of a struggle between, you know, two ideologies. You know, that is, in his sense, the socialist ideology and the capitalist ideology. And in the end, the capitalist ideology wins. But in the process, you know, socialism saves us from the worst form of capitalist ideology, that of Nazism and fascism before it expires, you know, but still the wrong ideology is in control and you know, humanity's prospects for utopia are distinctly limited. And the history of the 20th century is thus a tragedy. Um, and you, know, a bunch of counter narratives, you had the very much inversion of Hobbes bombs, a bunch of others, you know, but all about how their 20th century is an ideological fight of one sort or another. Um, and say in Frank Fukuyama's you know, formulation that liberal capitalist democracy is indeed the optimal end state of human social arrangements, you know, and we got there. And so, you know, history, his Hegelian sense of humanity trying out different ways of organizing and understanding itself as a community you know, comes to an end. But And I guess both of them would say that 89-91 or something would be the end with the fall of the USSR. Yes, but that actually the big story is the, the end of the Malthusian era starting around 1870 and how humanity now for the first time has to deal with the idea that we are probably going to become rich as a species. And so all of the narratives told by all the other um, historians are just very small pieces of that one, you know, um, and that narrative yeah, that we become rich, we finally figure out how to bake a sufficiently large economic pie so that everyone can potentially have enough. And what do we then do with that sufficiently large economic pie? Um, that's the big picture. That's the big story. Um, that's the story of the long 20th century. And I suppose the bottom line, the, the price, the elevator pitch summary of it is, yes, we learned how to bake a sufficiently large economic pie, something vastly in excess of what any previous century would thought could ever be needed. But the problems of slicing and tasting the pie, right, of equitably distributing it, and then using it wisely and well so that people feel safe and secure and are healthy and happy, you know, those problems of slicing and tasting of distribution and utilization continue to flummox us pretty much completely. And hence, we are not in the utopia. And hence, we're not in utopia. And you know, previous people, this would struck them as, as rather strange because your know, previous centuries would have seen that baking the sufficiently large economic pie is the problem. Okay, let's zoom into that 1870. So what happens? 
And can you convince the critic who would say that, well, I'm sure that people were a bit richer after that than they were before that, but so they were richer after the industrial revolution in the 1770s, maybe it has Really not, not, not very much. To critics, I counterpose John Stuart Mill, who was writing in the 1870s about how all the mechanical inventions hitherto, you know, implemented have not reduced day's toil of a single human being and have simply enabled a greater population to live the same life of drudgery and imprisonment. You know, that you're really a fairly hard Malthusian line. Yeah. That back before 1870, technological progress was never fast enough um, to deal with the grave Malthusian problem which is that under patriarchy, about one woman in three does not have a surviving son. You know, and if you reach the age of 50 without a surviving son in patriarchal regimes before back, then you are close to being socially dead. You have next to no social power at all. Probably would not have been the case had we not been patriarchal, right? The chances that you're going to not have any surviving children are only one in nine. Um, but the one in three chance of not having a surviving son kind of energizes people when they get extra resources to think, you know, trying for another pregnancy or two would be a good thing to do. You know, and so you have the world going from what, from 50 million people in the year minus a thousand to 500 million people by 1500 to 1. 1.3 billion by 1870. You know, and yes, there are efflorescences. There are places where the middle class is prosperous and the working class is not scared that they're going to um, starve to death. You know, yes, there's enormous technological progress. You know, but the other 1.3 billion people arrive in, alive in 1870 have much, much smaller farm sizes than did the 50 million people arriving in the world minus 1,000. And you know, while the upper classes and the middle classes certainly have much more interesting and much more technologically capable lives, you know, for the typical human being who is a peasant, you know, it's still a very rough struggle. And you know, that's the thing that potentially at least changes after 1870, you know, that after 1870, technological progress gets rapid enough you know, that there's no way that population growth can keep up with it. And so... People get richer, and as people get richer, children are better nourished, infant mortality falls, and then everyone looks around and says, hey, you know, maybe the eight pregnancies lifestyle, so I have two-thirds of a chance of having a surviving son, is not the kind of thing I need to do anymore, because I'm pretty confident my children will get to grow up. And so once you then get out of that mindset over the demographic transition, you're on your way to our present world, which looks like it will have 10 billion people rather than 1.3 billion people. You know, yes, the 20th century saw a huge population explosion, but, you know, but zero population growth is now approaching worldwide. And our technology has vastly outstripped um, that. You know, the land that supported one person in terms of food in 1870 now has to port, support six. Um, we do that. We can do that. And we can do that with only a very small proportion of our labor force now devoted to agriculture. And so basically, would it be right to say that what happens in 1870 is that before that, 
although you have increases in technology, you also have the, they are matched by an increase in population. And therefore the average person really, really doesn't have much more. Uh, I had uh, Aurel Galore on the podcast and he had some fascinating data on, on wages. And um, I was struck by just how little <laughs> really happened. Yeah, that 50%, 50 of your income before 1870 has to go to just 2,000 calories plus essential nutrients every day. And, and there isn't much change is what really fascinated me. It was like he, his book has the data on ancient Babylon, ancient Egypt, ancient Athens, pre-industrial Amsterdam, pre-industrial Paris, and they're all between five and 10 kilos uh, of how much wheat you get for a work day. And there are very special societies, you know, like say the Native Americans on the shore of San Francisco Bay who eat shellfish and have an extremely high protein and high calorie diet because, you know, they're... And without agriculture, right, they were hunter-gatherers. Yeah, yeah. Or the Comanche of the Great Plains after the horses escaped from the Spanish and after they caught the horses and learned how to do the nomadic buffalo hunting lifestyle where you hunt the buffalo with horses rather than on foot. But other than that, you know, you... Very, very quickly, you know, the patriarchal imperative that it's important to have a surviving son, you know, pushes population up and pushes population up until you reach the stage where the population can't grow any longer. Um, and that's usually where you've reached the stage that, you know, children's immune systems are so compromised because they're malnourished that they can be taken down by the common cold. And women are often so skinny that ovulation is hit or miss. Um, and that's what we keep bumping up against. It does take hundreds of years to do this, right? The bubonic plague takes down maybe a third of the population of Eurasia. And it does take a couple of centuries for the Malthusian logic to reassert themselves and for, you know, peasants to and unskilled urban craftsmen to find themselves in a situation where they get to eat meat only once a month. Um, rather than the much higher lifestyle of late medieval post-Black Death, you know, Eurasia. Um, but it comes, it comes. And am I correct that, uh, for example, in England, wages of a skilled worker in a city, it goes up and down since the year 1000, but it isn't dramatically higher after the Industrial Revolution which is around 1770s. England certainly got very close to escaping from Malthus between 1770 and 1870. Um, but, you know, a bunch of that, you may be a third of English productivity growth between 1770 and 1870 comes from the great globalization ingathering of manufacturing to Britain. Oh as it begins to export textiles and iron goods all over the world and things that would have otherwise been produced anywhere else, mostly China and India are instead produced in Britain. And so they have this great opportunity to move into very high value production. You know, and maybe a third of it was due to the fact that the last round of glaciers you know, were giant bulldozers that scraped all the rock off of the coal deposits. So, you know, England and the Ruhr Valley, too, have these absolutely magnificent coal deposits where the coal's simply at the surface. You, and you pick it up and it's close to sea level, so you can then float it by water. Um, 
And, you know, those two things, those two things that made England special from 1770 to 1870 were transitory. And so there's a world, there is a possible world in which things don't change from the point of view of technological revolution after 1870 and the, um, and the, and the, that the ingathering of manufacturing is completed, so that's no longer a source of growth. And, you know, the cheap coal is really used up, so that's no longer a source of growth. And then you have in England, you know, where productivity is growing at maybe three-tenths of a percent per year. And, you know, a population growth rate of six-tenths of a percent per year. Um, that would kind of offset that with respect to its effect on working-class living standards. So basically, the idea that the Industrial Revolution changes everything is not really correct because just having the 1700... There is a counterfactual in which after 1870, the world settles into a kind of steampunk equilibrium. <laughs> yes. With productivity growth, maybe a fifth or so of what we have in the world today. Um, but with the demographic transition not yet happening because... You know, while people are no longer living on $2.50 a day, they're living on something like $4 a day or so. And that really isn't enough without modern public health to get people feeling secure enough about their children, you know, to move you out of the eight pregnancies um, as a standard. And, do you know, with population increasing maybe 25% every generation, you know, that's the world still remains extraordinarily poor, you know, and in that case, we would have, you know, maybe 4 billion people on the earth right now with an average living standard of you know, maybe $1,800 a year, maybe one, <laughs> you know, one seventh of what we actually have now. And, yeah. you know, we'd be doing experiments with airplanes with biplanes as the most modern and zeppelins as the most modern of technologies. And that was a world we did escape with the second industrial revolution. So that does ask the, the pretty big question of why did this happen? And let's get to that in a moment. Before we do, I do want to get your opinion on just how poor was the world before 1870? Because there are people who say that there was near universal poverty. And there are people who say that this is um, a, a miscalculation based on using arbitrary, you know, U.S. dollars, for example, like living below some U.S. dollar threshold. How do you even calculate it? How, how, how do you meaningfully ask how many dollars did a hunter gather, you know, somewhere? Have? And so, for example, there's a, there was a recent paper by Jason Hickel and Dylan Sullivan yeah. uh, called Capitalism and Extreme Poverty, a Global Analysis of Real Wages, Human Height and Mortality Since the Long 16th Century, where they, mm -hmm. they put forward a lot of data suggesting that the kind of the, this idea that near to nearly 90% of people were living in poverty or extreme poverty um, in the early modern era doesn't seem to hold up if we take a more meaningful measure of what it really means to be poor, basically not having enough calories and vitamins, etc. It might have been more like 10%, 20%, something like that, even 500 years ago. And furthermore, that when the communities came in contact with modern capitalism, they, they started having decreased living standards. Uh, what do you think of their argument? First of all, is it a good argument? And secondly, how meaningful is it to how you see this transition in, at 1870? 
Well, you know, it's an important, it's an important argument, you know, and I think there are two things that are definitely nuggets of big fact in it. Hmm. And the first is that after the bubonic plague, right, that the Eurasian population and the African population had been kind of bubbling along doing their Malthusian thing before the bubonic plague. And all of a sudden, a third of the population is gone. And so farm sizes are 50% bigger. Hmm. So from 14, starting in 1400, you know, 50% bigger farm sizes with the technology of the time, that is indeed probably close to a sudden 50% increase, you know, in your potential resources. Yeah. So people who didn't die were much better off. Yeah. If you were spending 60% of your ancestors had been spending 60% of their income on their 2000 calories plus essential nutrients in 1300, you know, by 1400, you're only spending 40%, you know, which gives you a bunch more headroom. And, and that gradually gets removed over the course of the next several centuries around the world as um, Eurasia fills up again and Africa fill up again with population as the kind of we need to have a surviving son, so let's have more. Um, and certainly this filling up and the Malthusian decline in living standards that accompanies it is greatly sharpened by the coming of the imperial commercial revolution um, of globalization and then followed by colonialization which on the one hand gives another big boost to living standards worldwide through the Columbian exchange, right? But in addition to Columbian exchange, the coming extended with the coming of globalization and of really high volume world trade, all of a sudden it becomes worth elites all over the world just to oppress more, you know, because you can now do things hmm. um, with whatever you manage to steal from your lower classes. Plus, it becomes easier to oppress more because with the thing, the one thing the Europeans do, European globalization does bring is weapons. And so the balance of power yeah. between the rulers and the ruled, when the rulers have effective gunpowder weapons in substantial numbers and peasant revolts don't, um, it changes. And so you get a great sharpening of social classes and an intensification of exploitation all over the world during the Imperial Commercial Revolution era, which, you know, you had not had, um, had not had before. On the other hand, um, it still really looks like the case that in... You know, in what Marshall Salins would call societies of abundance, you know, you still are spending between 30 and 60% of your resources on your 2,000 calories a day plus essential nutrients. Um, your technological abilities to do other useful things with the remaining parts of your resources, um, you know, are not that great. Um, it's, you know, a poor life, although it's, and one in which there is always the chance that you will spend several hours a day thinking about how you really, really, really would love to have more calories right now. Um, but it's, and it's a life in which infant mortality is extremely high, you know, on the order of under five mortality, on the order of 400 per thousand. It's a life in which you are between two and four inches shorter than we are. 
because mm. of mm, yeah. calcium yeah. and other nutritional deficits. Um, and, you know, it's a life in which things are quite hazardous and in which potentially one in seven women dies in childbirth. Um, and all of that changes or the potential for all of that changes after 1870. So what happens in 1870? All of a sudden, instead of coming slowly one by one, innovations start hitting the world economy with extreme rapidity. And then all of a sudden, instead of it being a huge slog, you know, to take some piece of science or knowledge and turn it into a possible technology and then develop that technology and then deploy that technology and somewhere and then for that technology to diffuse. Um, I mean, it's not you know, that there were things as important as the invention of the electric motor or the long distance power line or the internal combustion engine or kind of the marvelous things German chemists did with you know, carbon with the hydrocarbons and so for carbon chains and so forth and aniline dyes. You know, starting from the time of the steam engine or even before, you did have inventions as consequential, but they came along only very, very, very slowly, right? One in a century, maybe, or one in every 40 years. And then with 1870, with the second industrial revolution, you know, it comes boom, 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 boom. In the book, you say that people invented inventing. Yeah. I mean, my guess is what really mattered was not any one individual invention, um, but instead you got, you, you, you got the system routinized, you know, that we managed to develop the industrial research lab you know, to rationalize and routinize you know, the discovery and development of better ways of manipulating nature and organizing ourselves. And we developed the modern corporation which rationalized and routinized you know, the development and deployment of technologies. You know, and then the global market economy gives you huge incentives to deploy technologies that can be used for profitable production and deploy them worldwide. And then the fact that other people are looking over your shoulder means that they diffuse incredibly rapidly. Yeah, yeah. Because you have the, the invention of telegram and, and, and steamships, right? Yes, yes. And all of those hit around 1870, you know, with maybe the corporation having its origins and the U.S. experience of trying to mobilize for the Civil War at a previously unheard of scale, right? And the industrial research lab growing out of the machine tool industry and the profession of engineering as it had evolved in the first half of the 19th century. And earlier experiments such as the United States is deciding that the Springfield Arsenal it wasn't just a place to make weapons, but to experiment with how they could be made uh, much more efficient. And, you know, globalization had been coming for a while. Yeah, but all these things seemed to hit around 1870. Um, and pretty much everything turns upward. Yeah, so that in 1919, looking back, you know, um, John Maynard Keynes you know, dates to 1870, the time when economic El Dorado began. When the devil of Malthus was banished and when technological progress was clearly so rapid you know, that there were no longer arguments about whether the working class was being immiserized or not. 
You know, it was quite clear all over the world that working classes were getting a much better deal you know, decade by decade. You know, and that happens in 1870. Since 1870, humanity's technological competence has doubled every 35 years, and which is a marvelous and wonderful thing. Yeah, can I ask you, what do you um, think about Oleg Galore's argument around this? So in our discussion and in his book, Journey of Humanity, he, he, he's quite similar in many ways mm -hmm. in what he's saying. He's also saying that humans, just there was no growth really in, in real wages for most of human history. Right. Because it was eaten by population. Growth. Right, right. And he also traces the dramatic change towards 1875, if I remember correctly, towards the, the late 1800s. But what he says is that what changed was that the technological development hit a threshold at which education became necessary, mass yes. education. Yes. And that spurs even industrialists, and actually especially industrialists, to, to lobby yes. for public education, which many people find very surprising, but that apparently is well recorded, at least in Britain. And, and, and so the idea being that there isn't really anything that has to change dramatically in the rate of technology. It just reaches this kind of tipping point. Yes. After which it becomes necessary to educate the population, which then leads into this demographic transition, less yes. uh, smaller family sizes, which then frees the first uh, countries of the North Atlantic uh, from all the Malthusian forces. And then you start having growth Uh, not growth in population, but growth in, 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 in per capita uh, income. Yes, that, that Odin sees a single switch being flipped. That before 1870, you know, the, the potential benefits to a parent from investing in one particular child, right, from sending that particular child to school, say, or learn, having them learn a trade or so forth, you know, were kind of small because... You know, technology was such that there really wasn't that much to learn and it wasn't that useful. And so before 1870, families say we should invest our resources in having a bunch of children in the hopes that some will survive and they will be there as a comfort to us as an old age and as a potential source of resources to us in our old age. And we need to have many baskets, each with an egg in it. Yeah, yeah. And the beauty in, in, in the theory is that it explains pretty well the situation of countries like India, which, according to, to this theory, were forced into a path where you don't need to educate your people because you're just growing stuff for the British. And therefore, whilst the British per capita income is growing, well, so is the, 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 the income in India, but it's just being dispersed across this gr growing population. So it's a neat theory. So what do you think about it? And, you know, and then in 1870, somehow a switch is flipped and all of a sudden it makes more sense for you to invest in having one, having two children, feeding them extremely well so their brains can grow and develop, feeding them lots of milk and protein and calcium and sending them to school because having, you know, um, one child able to work in the industrial economy of 1880 is worth more to you in terms of support in your old age than than are having six, three of whom will then die. And if you can feed that one child enough, um, then they're almost surely not going to die. And that that's what changes it. And that also changes the rate of technological progress because all of a sudden, a lot of resources that were being devoted to having more children, almost all of whom died, 
were devoted instead to building up the skills, the education, the knowledge, and the brains of individuals. And so simply the accumulation of human capital was so immense, and that shows up in my schema as an increase in the pace of technological growth. Yeah, it's a, it's a neat, it's a neat, yeah, it's a neat, it's a wonderful story. It all fits together. Um, yeah. I tend not to believe in the discontinuous flipping of single switches. I mean, you know, did you flick the switch and you flick the switch and so you start having fewer children and investing in education. And that fact that you're no longer having as many children is what allows income to rise and infant mortality to fall and, you know, validates um, the decision to invest. While in my view, it's wealth comes first and with wealth comes first, um, infant mortality starts to fall. And as infant mortality starts to fall, people say, wait a minute, we don't need to have as many children. And then you get the demographic transition. And I think my story fits his fits fits better because, um, we do have this huge population explosion. Right. From 700 million people in 1770 to 8 billion people today headed for 10 billion. Um, and so, you know, that there are about 50 or 60 years in every country in which technology and income is advancing rapidly, but in which people have not yet made this switch from having huge numbers of children. Um, down to two or three. Hmm. So what had to happen, you say, is that they had to get uh, richer. They had to have more, yeah, more food on the table and 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 more mm -hmm. security. What about engineers? I I've never appreciated engineers as much as I I I I've done after after reading the book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. W when did engineering start being a thing? Well, you know, kind of. Um, it really has to start in the 1740s because there has to be some guy who can fix the steam engine. Hmm. And hmm. indeed. That's what it becomes. That's where engineer hmm. is. The guy who knows how to fix the steam engine becomes the engineer. And then oh. as more and more devices arrive that require someone who knows how to fix them, you know, that word spreads out from the guy who knows how to fix the steam engine to the guy who knows how to fix all of these technological items. And then you get a bunch of them. And they start to form a community and they then start to at least talk among themselves and train and educate themselves. And so then you actually get this profession, which is focused not on craftsman like making of things or on mercantile trading of things <laughs> or estimation of things. And people like Nate Rosenberg, right, up at, or David Mowry up at, um, you know, our business school here would say that. That really, it's the coming in the 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s. You have engineering as a profession, you know, plus machine tools as an industry. You know, that we're not just going to have tools, we're going to have specialized tools for making things that are items of technology. That that's the real switch. And that yeah, once yeah. you get those, the fact that you know, a generation, a generation and a half later, you would get the industrial research lab and the corporation is no great surprise, hmm. you know, and globalization was coming because the railroad, the telegraph cable and the iron steamship were coming, you know, no matter what. And so David would probably say, no, I shouldn't put in 1870. I should say 1830. 
And I should say, but, you know, the 1830 really was when the fuse was lit. Yeah. And there was no way after 1830 to avoid us getting onto our wealth trajectory. That it wasn't anything, it wasn't freakish institutional inventions that happened in 1870. Instead, it was the existence of this profession of people who were in the business of technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The story of Nikola Tesla is really interesting. So let me try to paraphrase what I what I kind of got got from reading is that he was kind of a uh, this socially awkward mad inventor. More than socially awkward, right? That that apparently the only person who could stand him was George Westinghouse, right? George Westinghouse kept paying people to accept insults from Tesla. <laughs> so and so what changes? What changes when you go from 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 humanity having always had these mad geniuses to them mm-hmm. suddenly having Tesla work uh, yeah. for someone who plays, pays the bills in an industrial yes. research lab. What, what happens in that tra- transition? Why is it so important to have that? I mean, it sounds like a pretty boring thing to say that human condition changed because of the industrial research. <laughs> so, so why is it such a big deal? Before 1870, if you had an idea you know, about something that would work, you know, a better steam engine, say, You would have to not only be um, the inventor with the idea, you'd also have to be the developer and the machinist to demonstrate it. You'd then have to go out and you beg for money. You'd have to find a venture capitalist. You'd have to be a financier. You'd have to have better social skills than Nikola Tesla. You'd have to have huge amounts of extremely good social skills in order to assemble a team that could actually make your device, you know, and then sell it. And so, you know, it takes a great deal of time that someone like Eli Whitney spends maybe three times as much time begging for money from the U.S. government and explaining why it hasn't happened yet, as he does actually working on trying to make manufacturing with interchangeable parts. But once 1870 comes along, you know, um, Nikola Tesla can work full time on what he is better than anyone else in the world at. Yeah. And all of the jobs in which his productivity is actually negative um, can be done by other people, provided George Westinghouse is willing to apply sufficient money to keep the IRL lab going. And in the context in which Nikola Tesla um, single-handedly does 10 advances electrical engineering by a full decade, because he knows how to make electrons get up and dance in ways that no one else had a clue about and that other yeah. people would have taken 10 years to figure out. Um, and so he is useful. And so we get our modern alternating current electricity industry when we do, simply because George Westinghouse is there with the Westinghouse Corporation and the idea that we should have an industrial research lab like the one yeah. Thomas Edison already has. Yeah, yeah. I've heard you say that before 1870, if you wanted to, most people didn't get rich. Most people lived somewhere close to the poverty line. And if you did want to be rich, the only way to do it was to run an uh, extraction and an exploitation machine. Why? Well, how else, right? Um, maybe if you have a better idea for a water pump, um, you can build one for yourself. But if it really is that much better a water pump, other people will look at it and will immediately copy it. And so you won't be able to sell your services as a water pumper and as a maker of water pump for very much. 
And in addition, if you do start a very profitable, you know, commercial industrial enterprise using some kind of trade secrets for you know how to make textiles actually better than anyone else in the neighborhood. Well, you then become a very soft target, you know, in a world in which your property rights are very entangled with jurisdiction in the sense that the rich are usually the judges, you know, as well. Hmm. Um, so when Marx writes in mid-1800s mid that capitalism is an ex extraction and exploitation machine, yes. would you say that he's yes. kind of right about the, the capitalism of the time? Yes, you know, I mean, property is theft. When Proudhon said it was very close to being true, right? That how would any individual actually manage without having their hooks into what is basically a force and fraud exploitation and domination regime in which thugs with spears collect taxes from the peasants and in return offer nothing useful except possibly protection from the next group of thugs with spears miles away. And in which the thugs with spears have their tame accountants, bureaucrats, and propagandists um, there to explain that this is how much you owe them. And if you don't pay all your taxes next year, you are then in a social gift exchange position of obligation you know, to the local lord because he has done you a favor in not collecting all the taxes that are due. Um, plus, backed up by the idea that Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, deserves to be king because he's two-thirds god and one-third man. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And propagandists are eager to tell you this as many times as possible. Um, and people like Westinghouse are able to not run an exploitation extraction machine, but get rich by investing in inventions that will help everyone. Is that right? Yes. And do you know you could get rich through mercantile adventures before, but those always had a quasi-military edge. You know, at the very least, you need caravan guards and lots of and nasty caravan guards to get through, even if the principal purpose of the thing is mercantile. Um, medieval European monks, when they describe merchants, often describe them as homines duri, as tough men, tough guys. Uh, precisely because they move from place to place carrying valuable goods in an environment of very uncertain um, law and order and next to no enforcement. Um, and you, they very much have to be the case that every one of their caravans, that every one of their barges is sufficiently well armored that no local bandit or even no local landlord or no, no local prince will think it worthwhile to simply take it, kill them all, and pretend he doesn't know what happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so. I, I do appreciate the picture. I sometimes find it um, frustrating when people just use the term capitalism to describe everything that has happened in the, in the money world for the past, whatever is it, 300, 500 or so. <laughs> Years or, or, or something, yes, and I yes, assume yes. That, that what British and East India Company is doing with guns must be the same thing as what a modern corporation yeah. is doing. And also is puzzling, right? That, um, that in Friedrich Engels, it was pretty clear. Uh, you had feudalism, and then you moved over the course of 700 years or so to capitalism. And, you know, feudalism taught hierarchy and respect God and stay yeah. in your place. And your life is very much like of your grandparents. 
and you know you have obligations to though to everyone else and some of them have obligations to you and society is static and then engels said by 1700 we moved to better technologies craft and mercantile technologies commercial society in which you were probably a free person and you had to find a place in a network in a network economy and find someone to buy things from and someone to sell things to, usually to sell your labor to. And you were an individual with rights who entered into contracts with others and was formally free, and so should probably have some say in the government as well. Um, but that somehow the market prices at which you, if you were lower class, could trade were not very advantageous to you and you stayed poor. And, you know, the system told you it was your fault because you weren't sufficiently industrious. But actually, that's not the case. It was that commercial society capitalism was an extraction machine, just like feudalism, but one where the extraction was kind of hidden behind the fiction that we were just trading things hmm. when yeah. the system had rigged the prices at which they were trading. And then Engels said, here we are now moving into steam power. And it's obvious that production is social, you know, that we're all playing an essential role in something much, much bigger than ourselves, which is our collective knowledge and our collective organization. And it is that which is productive and which you know, deserves to own what is produced, since none of us individuals are essential at all for any piece of it. Um, and so since we're all humans together, since we all have this incredibly complicated division of labor, since only the division of labor itself is valuable, um, and since we're all human, well, we should all dress in identical blue denim overalls, call each other comrade, um, and share things equally and have a free society of associated producers where we rotate through the administrative jobs. Because after all, capitalism has simplified the administrative jobs so much that all you have to do to them is know how to add, subtract, multiply, divide, and issue receipts. Um, and that was what Engels said would be the shift from feudalism to capitalism to socialism, and that it would be the form of the technology of the steam power age that would teach people that socialism was the obvious thing to do, just as it was the network commercial trading economy of the capitalist age that had taught people that, you know, market economies and private property were the things to do. The problem is it didn't stop with steam power. You know, the extremely large working industrial working class all doing very similar jobs side by side because you have to work near the steam engine which is the source of power you know that society then dissolved during the second industrial revolution into a much more fragmented and diverse one in which different industrial interests were fighting over the surplus against each other rather than it being that everyone was a worker subject to the steam engine or a capitalist. And was it more diversified partially because of Tesla and electricity allowing transfer of power? Yes, the coming of these new, of the technologies of, the coming of the oil age, of the electricity age, of the chemicals age, you know, hmm. that all of a sudden it was no longer as obvious to people that they were just one worker among many. They might be skilled workers who were in this particular industry. And so that their principal thing possibly disadvantaging them was not that the bosses were in control, but rather that the, their sector did not get sufficient respect 
and in fact had had a tariff adverse to it imposed on. But then from the second industrial revolution economy, we moved on to the mass production economy, which is a different thing too, but which underpinned a great deal of the rise of social democracy. Um, but then the mass production economy was succeeded by the global value chain economy, and now it looks like we're headed into the info-biotech economy. And each of these really is a different mode of production. Um, and is one in which the workplace and the way it's organized teaches people different things about how society should and ought to work. Hmm. Um, and calling them all capitalism and saying we really all should be wearing identical blue overalls and sharing things equally and recognizing our common humanity as cogs in the production process. You know, the lessons that Engels said steam power society was teaching and Rose rightly saying steam power society was teaching, you know, to allied all of these things to say steam power, second industrial revolution, mass production, global value chain and info biotech are all just mm. one thing called capitalism causes a great deal of confusion. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they tried to solve it. People tried to solve it by talking about late capitalism. Um, the problem is people started talking about late capitalism in, two, in 1905. <laughs> okay and by now we're what still later late post late late later capitalism um, no i i take the point and i think that that is one of the, the the possible issues for example in the paper i earlier mentioned by sullivan and hickel is that he does kind of judge capitalism by the track record of, of not only post steam power but post this kind of uh, gunpowder empires look um, have, however have the imperial commercial have the imperial commercial machine you know, show up at your doorstep, whether it was 1750, 1850, or even 1920 is almost surely going to be a horrible thing. Yeah, which is what they, yeah, which is what they show. And then they use that as an argument against capitalism. And I guess that's why the terms matter is that it, it becomes a bit slippery. Um, however, however, there is still the question of, well, how much was the society still an extra extraction and exploitation machine after 1870? I mean, the, in the kind of standard textbook American historiography, this is the Gilded Age, which is known for dramatic increases in wealth, especially of the wealthy, but not exactly the nicest conditions for the average worker. Um, so what would you say to those who say, that, hold on, hold on, nothing really changed. The form of exploitations changed, the form of extraction changed. But, but this was still a few rich people getting really rich at the expense of, of the working classes. But, you know, infant mortality is no longer 400 per thousand. People are no longer having to spend 30 or 40 percent of their income on 2,000 calories plus essential nutrients. You know, the distribution of income is definitely not fair. And in a market society, right, um, you know, the only rights that a market society sees are property rights, and the only people with any social power are those who have the effective demand to buy things on the marketplace, which is the rich. And this is not a good society. In fact, a market society is not a society that people will stand for in the long. And, you know, Friedrich von Hayek very much said that social justice is unattainable for humans. And a market economy certainly does not produce social justice, but what it produces is prosperity. And so the best thing for humans to do is simply to accept the market economy and shut up. 
on the grounds that we'll be rich and prosperous. And even though the distribution of income is random and unfair, you know, at least we're prosperous and attempts to fix it will put us on the road to serfdom, you know? Some simply shut up and accept that the market giveth, the market taketh away, blessed be the name of the market, was what Hayek thought his entire life and went on to say that if democratic politics wants to move away from that, you know, wants to move away from the market economy on the grounds that it's unfair, um, that then you need to overthrow the democracy and get society back on track so that it understood that the market economy and the property rights were in fact sacred and no one should ever be able to monkey with them. It's interesting how much and, people can say under the name of freedom. Well, yes, and it has a certain kind of freedom and it does produce prosperity, right? That if you were Milton Friedman, um, you would say that you would bet um, that if you got rid of all government-sponsored monopolies you know, and all government restrictions on occupational choice and you know, the requirement that you go through this incredible lengthy process before you can call yourself a doctor and so forth, that then we would find that every human, single human being actually had a substantial amount of property and wealth simply because our brains are so capable and are so valuable. And that large-scale income inequality has to be maintained by an active government interference with the market. And if only we got away with that, then we would indeed have a market society that would be close to a free society of associated producers. Because everyone you know, could work and could work for a good wage. And if you asked Milton Friedman about social justice, well, he would say that, well, to the state of Wisconsin at the end of the 1930s, Social justice was that I should be fired from my job as an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin because the legislator thought there were too many Jews on the faculty already. Hmm. And that you know, social justice will often be hmm. very, very unjust hmm. and will just be the beliefs of those who currently have the power that you know, things should be organized in this particular way. Um, well, let's put a pin on Hayek and Friedman because yeah. they touch upon kind of the what then story of what happens after this explosion in our capacity mm -hmm. to invent, in our capacity to create wealth, capacity to escape poverty. But before we do that, 1870 is a turning point for the global, so-called global north, the, the North Atlantic mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. powerhouses. It's also the beginning of the of high imperialism. Almost all of Africa, a lot of Asia gets carved up by mm -hmm. by, by European mm -hmm. empires. I can imagine critics who would say that, hold on a second. Yes, you have a huge material abundance, but you only have a huge material yes. abundance in a few corners of the world which are able to run an extraction and exploitation machine extracting natural resources that you need for this, this whole business that are able to extract land and are extracting also overall materials from from these colonies uh, you take a bit of a different view i mean in, in in the book you say you actually say that the imperial ambition after the 1870 was was stupid <laughs> that, it, that it no more made sense uh for, for for the west for for european imperial powers to expand their empires and they were doing it instead from ideological reasons against their kind of own self-interest um 
Well, I can easily imagine people either disagreeing with that or just saying, well, the burden of proof is on you. So, so go ahead. Well, I would say first there's what we might as well call unequal exchange. That is that right, Brazil is making a very good living off of rubber in the 1870s and 1880s. You know, a very, very good living off of rubber. Uh, British Empire collects rubber plants and moves them to Kew Gardens and grows them in greenhouses. You know, British capital then takes rubber plants from Kew Gardens, um, capital machines and the mercantile network from the British Empire, and workers from the Pearl River Delta of China who are desperate to fi get farms and for whom being told you can move to a plantation in Malaysia and we will pay you twice as much as and earn in China. Um, you set up the great rubber plantations of Malaysia. And um, they're vastly more efficient in a biological production sense than the ones in Brazil because the rubber plant has left all its pests and parasites behind in Brazil. And so it grows like a weed. And you know, also you are paying Chinese workers who really do remember being at subsistence at spending 80% of their incomes on their 2000 calories a day and are extremely grateful uh, to have a place where they actually have enough money that they can buy alcohol with their plantation wages. And, you know, the Brazilian rubber industry crashes completely. Um, you know, they can't compete with Malaysians with, um, plantations. That story happens over and over again. That is manufacturing. The high value parts of the global of the global economy get concentrated in the global north. And because manufacturing is concentrated in the global north, engineering is concentrated in the global north, which means technological progress is concentrated in the global north. And in the global south, you're largely exporting primary product raw materials for which demand is relatively inelastic. But supply is potentially elastic because you can find a place where it's wet enough and you can grow rubber. So for listeners who are not familiar with the economics link, could you say, what does that mean in practice? Inelastic demand and elastic supply means that the overwhelming bulk of improvements in technology, the production technology, go not to the producer, but to the consumer. You know, the global south doubles its production of rubber or of palm oil, and you find the price of palm oil or rubber falling by half because, you know, it's limited by the amount of motor vehicles or mm. by the demands for cooking oil um, in the global north. Um, and so from 1870 to, oh, from 1870 to 1975, you know, the ratio of the incomes in the global south to the global north, that, that goes from 50%. Um, to 20%. And it's not that people in the global South were poorer in 1975 than their counterparts were in 1870, mm. right? That, but it's that while the, you know, while the global North was maybe five times as rich in 1970 as it had been in 1870, the global South was maybe twice or a little bit less than twice as rich on average in terms of how much of your income you had to spend on essentials. And, you know, since 1975, things have stabilized and we hope started to reverse. Um, and on a person, a person to person level, they definitely have reversed because, you know, China and India have caught up substantially and in China's case, massively. But, you know, 
But from 1870 to 1975, you do have this story of unequal exchange, of the concentration of manufacturing and engineering, and thus of technological progress in the North, and of you know, inelastic demand for global South products, plus the idea that you can always get more workers from China and India willing to undercut whatever a union in a developing country has managed to gain, you know, that this process of unequal exchange, you know, drives our huge failure to create a utopia because we create an incredibly unequal world on a nation by nation level. But, you know, this has little to do with imperialism per se, right? That the apparatus yeah. of proconsuls and armies and governments and so forth, um, this process of the development of underdevelopment occurs whether or not a country has control over its own policies um, and over its own. Um, so when I say imperialism was stupid, um, what I'm saying is that it was undertaken for reasons other than economic advantage. Hmm. Because the economic advantage, the fact that the global south was going to sell the global north a huge amounts of very good stuff, very cheap over the century after 1870, that that was baked into the cake by the structure of the world economy and that it did not require this political military supervention. Interesting. So even without high imperialism, the, the logic could have played out in the same unequal yeah way and you know and it did market. right and it did the british never established proconsuls in latin yeah. america and yet you know the terms of trade extracted as yeah. much wealth yeah yeah or in ethiopia or in thailand or yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. well uh, that's about global inequality what about within nation inequality so maybe i can try to summarize my my, my take mm -hmm. on what happens next because i mean the, the big picture is we're, we're, we've talked a lot about 1870, what that means, why you want to tell this story of the long 20th century, starting 1870, ending in 2010. <laughs> it ends because we have this sluggish recovery from the Great Recession and because a substantial amount of people turn against those ideologies that were kind of driving this, this economic prosperity in the long 20th century. But what happens between? So we have this, this, this incredible capacity to create wealth, have less and less people be farmers and those farmers producing more and more. That gives us this kind of tools for utopia. Now, we don't get to utopia, but it's not only because we haven't tried to distribute these goods more. I mean, there's been looking at the inequality uh, graphs in, in, in Western countries or in Japan, they're pretty striking. There's this huge drop. Um, sometimes starting mm. after the First World War, sometimes starting yeah. a bit later, but, but yeah. it's a huge yeah. drop. And, and uh, so would it be right to say that the big eras that you talk about in the, there is first, there's right. the era from 1870 to the beginning of the First World War, where there's a lot of wealth being created, but not that much, a lot of inequality. Then there yeah. is the, the era of the World Wars and the Great Recession, not so good for growth but maybe right. starting to have elements of, 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 of more within national right. inequality. Oh, yes. sorry, e equality uh, between yes. the rich and the poor. Yes. And yes. then yes. you get the 30 glorious years. So, so uh, what yes. are the 30 glorious years? Yeah, the 1945 to 1975. You know, the age, Trentes Gloriosus, the age of social democracy, what historian Gary Gersel calls the New Deal order. 
Um, the era of greatly expanded social welfare programs, the era of greatly expanded entitlements that you gain just as your rights as citizens, the age of strongly progressive taxes and strong unions, um, an age that produces societies more equal than most of those we see when we look back at human history, and also ones that are fabulously rich, so much that when I got into this business in the early 1980s, people talked about the Kuznets curve. How society starts out, how you get an industrial revolution, how the industrial revolution leads to a very steep rise in inequality as you know, merchant princes and also favored labor aristocracies seize wealth, but then, then calls forth a political reaction and also an economic reaction as technology moves on in so that it's more favorable to human capital and more favorable to decentralized enterprise. And then we get this massive slope decreasing inequality to produce a middle-class society, you know, and then the story ends. Um, but then, of course, we take the neoliberal turn and inequality takes off like a rocket after 1980. Well, it takes off in some places. It takes especially yeah. off in the U.S. It does take off especially in the U.S. Well, let, let's zoom in on this. Surge. So we have this era of the glorious era of social democracy in, in these rich Western countries, which see both a dramatic decrease in equality and really, really dramatic growth in absolute terms. Yes. So yes. it's a kind of everybody's happy situation. Mm -hmm. Then what happens? Some people say what happens is that you start making political mistakes. Some people say what happens is that this, this is unsustainable and you have to change politics. What's your story? Briefly, what happens in the so-called neoliberal term? Well, you know, I mean, Paul Krugman's story is that you had these oil shocks um, that caused inflation in the 1970s, and they were, you know, um, badly handled, and you had inflation, and people said, well, gee, inflation shows the social democratic governments don't really understand what's going on and aren't competent. Mm. We need a change. You know, we need a government that will um, cut back on all this wasteful spending that is producing inflation and that also will re-solidify the social order so that work is properly rewarded again and the moochers and the takers don't get stuff they don't deserve and that they win a couple of elections by luck and then manage to entrench themselves in the political system by luck and propaganda and the fact that the rich like a moral philosophy that says the rich are really wonderful people who deserve all mm. the good things we have. And we're off on at least the downward political economy spiral we've been on since 1980, according to Paul Krugman, even though the underlying engine of technological growth continues. And so we are today with a worse society than we would have had and we had in the late 1970s and that we would have had had social democracy managed to fight off this particular challenge. But what about the right-wing argument here for those people who are, who, who are not just celebrating inequality? Would the, the, the kind of right-center argument would be to say that a rise in inequality after the 70s, 80s is not because of the tax cuts. It's because of globalization. It's because of moving of manufacturing jobs to places where there are good people willing to do the same work for cheaper. And that the only the, the oh, jobs that stay in places like UK and US are managerial jobs. And so you naturally get this really, this, this huge pressure 
and that you can't really just keep taxing the rich when they can easily move abroad to As globalize. As you say, so, there are big benefits to having the engineering jobs because if the engineers are around, people will be thinking about pushing technology forward. And, you know, the flight of manufacturing was in large part in the U.S. because of Reagan's large budget deficits that pushed up interest rates and thus the value of the dollar. You know, that the U.S. decline in manufacturing jobs was much more rapid than it ought to have been. And the decline in Britain was more rapid than it ought to have been as well. The right policies to have been followed were to be have been doing in the 1980s and 1990s what we're doing now with the CHIPS Act to the extent of subsidizing industries where we believe there are large externalities of engineering communities having them. And, you know, to the extent that you become a financial center, um, recognize that the financial center has to be one that is very good at figuring out how to export capital and fund investment elsewhere in the world. No. that both Britain and the United States have in positions where they've played their economic hand badly, you know, because they've traded, you know, manufacturing and engineering jobs for, you know, construction service and finance jobs that are in the long run not as socially valuable. Um, and the better thing to do would have been to have had less financing of investment and consumption in the U.S. by foreign capital. And more that New York and London and financial centers are simply way stations um, for the shift of and for the redeployment of investment around the world, rather than being places where the money sits and it lands and it then sticks and it then buys up apartments in London and townhouses um, in Kensington. Okay, let's, let's get back to the big picture um, of the idea of the long 20th century. So not only do you say that I mean, you, you do admit that all grand narratives are faulty in some sense, but, but it's a great grand narrative that I love. But you say that the, the long 20th, 20th century, not only is it an idea that we should have, but it's also something that we should acknowledge about the long 20th century, is that it was the first time in human history where history was mainly economical. Or, or, or you can put that better, that was my paraphrasing. But why was economics now so important? Our technological competence is doubling every generation, right? That means every generation, we have a brand new set of mode of production hardware underpinning society. And, you know, um, everything else has to run on top of that hardware. We have our sociological, econo, cultural, political software running on top of the forces of production hardware, the tools and organizations we use to work. And so every generation... We have to rewrite those so they don't crash because the old hardware is no longer there and the new hardware is here. And we have to rewrite them on the fly with no experience. Um, we have Schumpeterian creative destruction that these new technologies bring with them immense wealth and immense opportunity. You know, but they also destroy entire occupations, livelihoods, industries, and communities. And that happens every generation and then happens again. You know, and there was nothing you know, like that before. You know, the technological doubling time for the world before 1870, during the Industrial Revolution century, you know, it, it took 140 years back then for humanity's technological competence to double rather than 35. Back before 1870, you almost surely did have the same kind of job in life as your grandfather or grandmother. 
Um, and if you didn't, it was because you were unusually socially mobile. You know, and before 1770, we're talking about situations in which it really takes a hundred years to have as much technological progress and change as we have in two. You know, that in every previous century, the economy is just kind of sitting there in the background. Um, it isn't a changing thing. It isn't, it's the backdrop of history rather than a character. You know, but in the 20th century, it's not only a character, it's the main character. And it's the character that every time any other characters sit down at a table to do something, the economy comes along and in another round of Schumpeterian creative destruction overthrows, throws over, you know, knocks over the table, scatters everything onto the floor and people then have to pick it up. Does that explain the main things that many historians would see? So m many people, if they look at 20th century, they, they see the world wars, they yes. see uh, the great inclusion, their discrimination due to sex or, or race being, being slowly mm -hmm. and painfully, but nevertheless Uh, diminished or even zoned out in in some realms. Are these things that you right. can explain from an economics point of view? Well, they're certainly driven by an economics point of view. You know, after all, all of world communism, um, it was simply a doctrine about what the proper economic organization of society should be. You know, that we should have no markets, but instead we should have large industrial planned monopolies um, that then negotiated with each other. And do you know, to actually call yourself to arms and um, wreak huge revolutions over what looks like a technical matter of, you know, the organization of production is something a weird way to do it. And that it was indeed the sociological upset produced by the repeated Schumpeterian creative destructions of societies that planted the seeds of fascism and that people demanded that some leader do something to stop, you know, or at least to manage. You know, Hitler comes to power because the German Zentrum and the German Social Democratic Party have absolutely no clue, you know, how to handle a depression as we're moving from the age of, you know, the second industrial revolution economy into that of mass production. You know, and Hitler yeah. says, I do, and manages to get enough of the vote. And then Hitler, too, was... It was an economic doctrine. It was that Germany needed to be prosperous and strong. And the way that Germany needed to be prosperous and strong, um, well, it started out with we have to make Poland and the Soviet Union into our India. Yeah. yeah we have to colonize and conquer and rule them and extract the resources from them. And then it turned into, um, well, we have to make... Um, the Soviet Union and Poland into our trans-Mississippi West, right? We have to take the indigenous inhabitants there and herd them onto reservations and take all their land and settle German farmers, right, on it. Um, you know, that even the world wars are, you know, overwhelmingly motivated by concerns that earlier generations would have seen as economic rather than good reasons, the standard reasons to wage war are to win glory for yourself as brave or to win an extra province for your king to rule or to convince people that they need to worship God in the right way. <laughs> um, and do you know, know that these wars have explicitly economic motives and are also explicitly decided by economic factors? What about civil rights? Do you mean how is it that we have managed to move 
so extraordinarily toward inclusion in the long 20th century. Uh, is it an economic story or is it a parallel story? Oh, I would say that the gender part of it is substantially an economic story, that you get out of the Malthusian trap, then you go down from eight pregnancies per woman to two. And all of a sudden, it is much, much harder for males to keep their advantage. Um, did the economy move you to a situation in which distinctions of caste and of race no longer seem to be as important? Yeah, definitely, definitely very much so. And I think here the argument is well, it's the old argument of Marx and Engels, you know, that as you move into a market-driven and technology-driven society, you know, that all that is solid melts into air as the ability of people to even justify, mm. you know, racial caste or status preferences, um, you know, ebbs away. That, you know, you can no longer claim that you deserve to own this large estate outside of France because your ancestors came across the Rhine with Clovis the Frank in 440. And he conquered it from the Romans, and so you deserve it because, you know, finders keepers, that that's really no longer sustainable. And again, I think it is the lived experience technology is as you move into a much more plastic and much more changing world. Um, that in earlier civilizations, it was obvious that who your parents were and what kind of person you were mattered, if only because social yeah. mobility was so rare and the economy was so static. You know, and yet that has vanished by the mm. time you get into our boom, 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 every generation, a new mode of production um, society. It is a heartening thing, however, to see that it is so strong, you know, that Generally, the movement toward inclusion, although I could wish there were a little more pro-immigration settlement worldwide, you know, that after all, someone willing to move thousands of miles and enter a new culture in order to get a better life for themselves and the family is the kind of get-up-and-go entrepreneurial person that most societies ought to at least welcome. <laughs> yeah. 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 Will we survive the 21st century? Probably, um, probably, you know, that we're going to have big problems with global warming and nuclear proliferation and others we don't yet think about. Um, but, you know, there are a billion of us and we are tremendously ingenious, you know, as a species. So. Professor Bradley Long, thank you so much for your excellent book, for your generous time. No, thank you very much. And thank you for listening this episode until the very end. I really enjoy recording, editing, and, and doing all the work that goes into these episodes. I, I hope that you enjoy the product. If you do, then I would really appreciate a helping hand. Uh, it can be something as simple as giving a nice review on your podcast app, sharing it with a friend, or if you haven't done so, just subscribing. That really helps immensely at this early stage of building the show. Whatever you decide to do, I hope that you decide to tune in the next time. Until then... Take care.